Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Dr. Robert Epstein, a distinguished scientist, former Psychology Today editor-in-chief, founder of the Cambridge Center for Behavioral Studies, and senior research psychologist at the American Institute for Behavioral Research and Technology. Um, we'll be discussing Google, which he says is the biggest company and monopoly in the history of the world, and how what Google uh, is doing and other big tech companies pose, poses a great threat to the freedom, liberty, um, privacy, and democracy of not just us in America, but the entire world. Now, Dr. Epstein, for centuries and for millennia, mankind has often been ruled overtly by an, kind of an iron fist, if you will, through sometimes respectable monarchies, uh, despots, and dictators. But it seems, thanks to the technology developed after four industrial revolutions, we're moving into some kind of Machiavellian covert digital uh, dictatorship, a friendly fascism, a totalitarian democracy. Uh, I, I believe you've likened the function of Google to a totalitarian uh, regime. You've produced a lot of research, given many interviews, testified before Congress uh, last summer on Google, and how Google has been interfering in elections in an undetectable or ephemeral fashion by swinging tens of millions uh, of votes, not just in the U.S., but around the world. So could you tell us a little bit about your work on the search engine manipulation effect or SEAM and give us your latest thoughts on, on what's happening with this and what this means for our future? For more than seven years now, I've been uh, conducting uh, controlled experiments on uh, a number of new forms of influence that the internet has made possible. So the first one is, uh, was the one you mentioned, which I call SEAM, which stands for Search Engine Manipulation Effect. Uh, I discovered that in early uh, 2013, uh, basically performed some experiments, uh, which I thought, I thought were defective in some way because I couldn't believe the numbers I was getting. But I performed some experiments which showed uh, that when search results, the kind you get when you perform a search on Google, uh, when search results favor one candidate, first of all, people can't even see that. I mean, how would you see that if, if you think about it? Because what that means is if you click on a high search result, you end up going to a web page that makes one candidate look really good and maybe the other candidate look bad. So how, how would you know in advance just by looking at the search results? It's, 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 it's impossible. So people can't see that favoritism. That's number one. Number two, that when there is favoritism in search results, uh, that very rapidly shifts the opinions and the voting preferences of people who are undecided. So that's the key here. There are people who are vulnerable, who can be influenced. Uh, and it turns out that uh, the search results is an extremely powerful form of influence. And when you think about it, search results always put one dog food ahead of the other or, uh, you know, one comparative shopping service ahead of the other. That's a very controversial issue in Europe. Uh, and also one candidate ahead of the other. In other words, the search engine has no equal time rule built into it. It's always going to favor one candidate. So here's the problem. When, when you favor one candidate, that can easily shift uh, anywhere between 20 and 80% of undecided voters, uh, even after one search. Now, if you're if people are searching over and over again for a period of weeks or months on election-related topics, uh, that means over time in, in a big country where there are a lot of votes, 
a lot of voters, uh, it means you can literally shift millions of votes over time. And because there's no record kept of search results that are generated just for you on the fly in the moment, because there's no record of them, in other words, they're ephemeral, it means no one can figure this out. In other words, no one can go back in time and figure out uh, that either accidentally or on purpose, uh, your search engine determined who won the election. And so uh, as of uh, 2015, I calculated uh, that upwards of 25% of the national elections in the world were being decided by Google's search algorithm. This is in, this is independent of whether uh, executives or employees at the company uh, are doing anything deliberately. Uh, the algorithm alone is literally deciding close elections around the world. So that was where it started. That was SEAM. That was back in 2013. I'm still doing research on SEAM, trying to understand it uh, better and better. But since then, I've discovered about a dozen other new forms of influence that are very much like SEAM. Uh, the one that we're focusing on right now is called YME, which stands for uh, YouTube Manipulation Effect. Uh, I should have some numbers uh, that I trust by April or May, but it looks like YME is going to be even more powerful uh, than Seem. And here's the thing. The people at Google know that they have this power. We know this from leaks, from documents, uh, 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 a couple of videos that have leaked, and we know this from uh, uh, whistleblowers who have uh, either been fired by Google or who've just voluntarily quit uh, Google. Uh, we know this without any doubt. In other words, I'm, I am year by year by year stumbling onto, discovering, studying, quantifying a phenomena which <laughs> people at Google have 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 always known about or have known about for a long time. I'm just I'm a latecomer if you think about it. Uh, the fact that I'm I'm finding these phenomena, I'm I'm coming in rather late. So this is a it's really quite frightening. I have to tell you, it's really quite frightening because the more I have learned uh, about the power that Google has to shift opinions and votes and attitudes and beliefs and purchases without people knowing and without leaving a paper trail, the more I've learned about this, uh, the more concerned I have become. And I, over time, have also become concerned about my personal uh, safety uh, because, of course, uh, there aren't too many people out there who are researching these things and who are you know, going public with this information. I mean, you have to be nuts to fight Google. You have to be crazy because they have so much power uh, and they exercise that power. I, I refer listeners uh, to some previous interviews that you've given, such as a recent one uh, with Mercola that was uh, two hours long and you go into a lot of uh, detail there. So I don't, I don't want to spend uh, so much time uh, on that. But, you know, another one of my questions, um, how important is it to examine uh, the nexus between big tech uh, and what Eisenhower in his farewell speech uh, called uh, the military-industrial-congressional 
uh, complex, and he warned of the scientific elite uh, that would come about if we weren't paying attention. Um, because, you know, apart from the CIA and NSA seed funding uh, Facebook uh, and Google back in the day, uh, sometimes it seems that big tech today effectively operates uh, as an arm uh, of the Pentagon because uh, you see them terminating social media accounts of foreign leaders, you know, ir Iranian, Venezuelan, uh, American activists that uh, promote, that discuss a narrative that's contrary to U.S. foreign policy or, or other aspects. So uh, can you talk a little bit about that? I'm so glad that you brought up President Eisenhower. Uh, I was just writing about him yesterday. You know, uh, people who remember him or who study about him uh, mainly remember him as a great general. Uh, he was actually the head of Allied forces uh, that fought uh, the Nazis in uh, World War II. So he he was a you know a great general. Uh, then he became president, and you know, in fact, we we don't think about him very much as president except for his departing speech. <laughs> the speech he gave in January of 1961, just a few days before John F. Kennedy uh, uh, became president, is an extraordinary speech. And yes, it uses that phrase, military-industrial complex, which you just said. But guess what? There's more in that speech. Because Eisenhower also warned about the rise of a technological elite this was 1961. He warned about the rise of a technological elite that could take control over public policy without people knowing and basically rule uh, our country uh, without people's awareness. He actually warned about this in 1961. He said that we have to be extremely vigilant uh, to prevent this kind of thing from happening. Now, unfortunately, um, uh, my work and some other research out there as well, and of course the whistleblowers, uh, suggests that the technological elite now exists. Now, let me give you a quote here, since it's right in front of me. Let me give you a quote from a book a uh, very famous book in the U.S. called The Hidden Persuaders, which came out in 1957. It was written by a journalist. And uh, this was about new forms of control uh, that companies were using and some politicians were using uh, that were invisible to people. That's what this whole book is about, The Hidden Persuaders. It is still in print, believe it or not. It's been in print since 1957. It's been updated. How many books, you know, besides the Bible, uh, can you say that about uh, and in this book, Vance Packard, the author, quotes a British economist named Kenneth Boulding, uh, who at that time was a professor in the U.S., as saying the following, and I'm just going to read it, a world of unseen dictatorship is conceivable, still using the forms of democratic government. I'm going to say it again because it's so extraordinary. A world of unseen dictatorship is conceivable, still using the forms of democratic government. That's from 1957. Unfortunately, I believe we are now in that world. And yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's really heavy stuff. And I mean, just to, you've talked about some solutions. So previously, and what, what you testified about was one solution for that was, 
to um, make make kind of a, like a public comments Google search uh, index and to, to create more competition. But I mean, do, would that how optimistic are, are you of that happening? But it, even if that happened, would that solve this, this problem um, and, and what you just described? Well, it would it would it would reduce uh, Google's ability to have impact uh, anywhere in the world. In other words, if their index, the database they use to generate search results, if that was turned into a public commons, and there's there's precedent for that, by the way, both in law uh, in Europe and the United States uh, and in Google's own business practices, there's actually precedent for that. If that happened, in other words, if if you and I and my kids could all set up competing search platforms uh, by drawing on Google's database, uh, within a few months, within a year or two, there'd be thousands of competing search platforms. Uh, search would become competitive again, as it was in the beginning. I mean, Google was not the first search engine. It was the 21st search engine. Um, and search used to be highly competitive. Search be would become competitive again, and there'd be a lot of innovation introduced in search. There's been no innovation in search for 20 years because of Google. No innovation at all. It's, it, it looks the same as it did back then, and everyone in the world uses it, and that's it. We're stuck. We've been stuck. So, uh, you know, could this be implemented? Could some authority turn Google's index into a public commons? Uh, most certainly, yes. Uh, the European uh, Union could do it, for example. And the European Union has been very aggressive uh, in, in uh, challenging uh, Google and, to a lesser extent, Facebook. Uh, the European Union could do it because uh, five of Google's data centers, they only have, I think, 12 or 13, are in Europe. So uh, most definitely the, the EU could do it. Uh, and there are several agencies, federal agencies in the U.S. that could do it. Our Congress could do it. Uh, it actually could happen. It, in some respects, it would even be good for Google uh, because, uh, you know, if, if big, big uh, users like uh, Microsoft, which has a terrible search engine called Bing, but if big, if big users like Microsoft uh, started drawing on, uh, you know, Google's index, uh, they'd have to pay Google. So, you know, Google could still make money. But the point is, uh, there would be thousands of search engines. You would turn search into, uh, into an environment that looks like our media environment, where there are thousands of media sources. They're all vying for your attention. They all uh, specialize on different issues. Uh, they focus on different, uh, different demographics, different uh, you know, types of people. You'd have search engines that... Uh, that focus on women. You'd have search engines that focus on the Netherlands and, uh, uh, you know, and uh, conservatives and so on, uh, which is good. That's how our media system works around the world. That would be good for everyone. So, you know, will this happen? I can't say for sure. There is a problem here. There is a problem. <laughs> we have a problem, Houston, as it says uh, in the movie. Um, the problem is that I'll pose it as a question. What happens if the new mind control machine doesn't want you thinking bad things about the new mind control machine? So the problem is that Google has, has such power to influence opinions and to influence politicians and to buy politicians and to get certain politicians elected. Uh, again, it's hard to fight them, hard to fight them. So. You know, I, 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 I can't be certain that my idea will be implemented, but I know it will be good for, for humanity, might even be good for Google, 
Uh, and it would take care of at least you know, the threat that Google poses to democracy and to human autonomy. Now, we still have other companies out there um, that have almost as much power as Google does to influence opinion. So, you know, but I could only go one step at a time. So I think Google is the worst offender. Google is the biggest threat. Uh, there is a very simple way uh, to remove the threat that Google poses, and that is to turn its uh, search index into a public comment. I wanted to go back to the worst case uh, scenario. So you, you provided a solution there, but you know we're seeing this increasing censorship uh, all around the world, uh, and especially now creeping in the West. Uh, dissident thinkers uh, on the left and the right uh, are having their accounts uh, terminated, but it's now shocking uh, to see how this is creeping into the real world because I've been reading about just a few people at the moment, but this can you know get worse where they're having their Airbnb uh, accounts terminated, Uber. Uh, PayPal, and even in some cases, you know, bank accounts. They're discussing now for political uh, Visa and Mastercard. Uh, we're discussing for political views, uh, canceling your bank accounts. Uh, I've recently uh, had trouble with one uh, bank account at the moment. I, I I'm I'm fighting with, and so I'm wondering uh, what's going on. Uh, and you know, there are countless dystopian novels that depict this technocratic dystopian future as well as you know you mentioned the bible i think there's some prophecies there uh about a dystopian kind of global state so if if big tech uh, isn't broken up or if google doesn't pro uh, provide its search uh, index um you know will we be end up living in this uh, global black mirror scenario or this you know chinese sesame social credit system Unfortunately, uh, that's a distinct possibility. And in my opinion, the year 2020, which is happening now, um, is uh, possibly a turning point. It's going to take us in one direction or the other. Um, because I've calculated uh, that the big tech companies, which are mostly American companies, um, they can shift in our presidential election uh, this year, they can shift uh, 15 million votes uh, without anyone knowing that they've done so and without leaving a paper trail for authorities to trace. So if I can figure that out, guess what? They could figure it out even more precisely. So this means that this year uh, in the U.S. and possibly uh, other countries too, but certainly in the U.S., we're going to go one way or the other. In other words, there, we're either there's either going to be a sweep of candidates around the country, uh, including in Washington D.C., that are put in office by big tech companies. The main, most powerful one being Google, uh, or not. And if 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 they're allowed to shift all of those votes completely unchecked. Then I think we are, we are headed, unfortunately, in that uh, dystopian uh, direction because what will happen is they, they will simply uh, consolidate the power they have and that power will grow. In Obama's uh, second term of office, uh, six federal agencies in the U.S. were run by former Google executives. Uh, his chief technology officer was a former Google executive, Hillary Clinton's chief technology officer, uh, Stephanie Hannon, former Google executive. Uh, there were about 240 people who swapped between high positions in Obama's administration and high positions at Google. And there were about 450 visits to the White House by Google representatives. That's about 10 times more uh, than any other company. 
Uh, now, all of that disappeared when Trump came into office. I am not a Trump supporter. I'm not a conservative. I'm not a Republican. Um, and I'm not I'm not anxious to have to see Trump serving another term. But under Trump, OK, the Federal Trade Commission, the Department of Justice, uh, 51 attorneys general around the country, Congress, they're all investigating uh, Google, all of them. This is happening un under his administration. Uh, to contrast that with Obama, in January of 2014, when, uh, uh, is it 20, no, 2013, January 2013, when Obama began his second term, one of the first things he did, literally within days, was to shut down the antitrust investigation against Google uh, that had been started by the our Federal Trade Commission. It's one of the first things he did was shut down the investigation, even though the report uh, that had been issued the month before uh, from the FTC uh, had found clear evidence um, that there was uh, significant bias in Google search results favoring Google products and services. In other words, the staff at the FTC was recommending that they go forward, that the investigation had to be continued and expanded, and Obama just shut it down. And he shut it down right after a representative from Google visited the White House. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's some uh, interesting uh, in information. And uh, I wanted to go look uh, a bit on the individual, uh, what indiv individuals uh, can do, because you've been talking about what we can do as a society. Um, but look at some new developments. Uh, you've written an article that people can find online that's very useful, seven simple steps toward online uh, privacy, many of which I have already uh, implemented. Um, and people can, this can help people protect themselves in this Orwellian environment. But I wanted to go a little further than the article um, because there have been some kind of new uh, developments. Uh, for, so one of the first things you suggest is getting off Gmail uh, and the Google Suite. Uh, so I'll just give some of my examples of what I've been doing. So. Uh, I was a early believer in uh, Startmail and Startpage because of uh, Catherine Albrecht, who I've interviewed on this podcast. Um, and so I, I, I was subscribing, pay for paying for Startmail, and then apparently recently they were bought, uh, or a significant uh, percentage of Startmail Startpage were was purchased by an advertising company. So enemies of of, of privacy, and then. So now moving on to like uh, the smartphones, right? Getting off of Android and, and Apple. So I, I was I bought the Silent Circle uh, black phone. Uh, I I spent a thousand dollars, one for my wife and for myself, and that turned out to be a dud. They stopped supporting uh, the first edition. Uh, and you were talking about BlackBerry in Marcola's interview, but I recent news: um, the Chinese company that was supporting BlackBerry apparently pulled out, and now BlackBerry doesn't seem to have a a future. So now on the on the smartphone front, it's not looking good. Uh, and then going to the VPNs now, one, just one more example. Uh, I bought my first VPN was the Private Internet Access, PIA. Recently, uh, they were bought by a company that has ties to Israeli uh, intelligence. And so it's just like, it seems that, you know, the article that you wrote and, you know, this hope that we, we had some privacy alternatives, uh, I don't know what's going on. I mean, can, can you comment on this? <laughs> it's, a, it's a battle. You can think of it as a kind of cat and mouse uh, competition. It's a, it's definitely a battle. I need to update that article to talk about what's happened with StartPage. Uh, the reason I haven't done that yet is because I wanted to be clear about what I was recommending as an alternative. Uh, what I've done is I've set up a URL 
which is privatesearch.com. Private spelled P-R-Y instead of P-R-I. So as in we don't pry. So I've set up privatesearch.com and privatesearch.com will will automatically take you to whichever search engine I think right now is the best and the most private. So at the moment, if you go to privatesearch.com, that's private P-R-Y, it takes you to a European search engine, which is called Swiss Cows. Terrible name for a search engine, Uh, but it's quite good and it does preserve your privacy. It's a shame about StartPage. It really is a shame. And it's a shame about what's, you know, this recent announcement about BlackBerry. That's, that's very new. Um, that's, it's very troubling. It, it is, it's a, it's a war. I called it a game, but I think it's a war. And it's, uh, it's going to be hard for those of us who want to preserve privacy, at least the option for privacy. Um, you know, it's getting harder and harder for us to, to do this. Now, it has to almost be a part-time job, you know, and uh, I mean, I do it well. I have not received a targeted ad since 2014. Um, the website uh, that people can go to to get that article or the URL is uh, my uh, my seven simple steps.com. That'll take you to the article. Um, and I agree, though, it needs to be updated. Uh, my seven simple steps.com. Uh, so there are things you can do as individuals, but it's true. I agree with you that, you know, you, you might take all the precautions possible right now and then next week they're not adequate anymore. You know, those precautions don't protect you quite so well. Uh, that's that's the world we live in there. We're, we are under siege uh, by technology companies uh, who pose three enormous threats to humankind, which is number one is, of course, massive surveillance. And that's uh, that's the privacy problem. And number two is censorship, which you mentioned. Uh, that's extremely dangerous because when you censor, when you suppress information, people don't know because they don't know what they don't know. That's the problem with censorship. It's an extremely powerful way to control people. And the third area is just manipulation in general because there's so many techniques now that can be used to manipulate people without their knowledge. Um, We're studying YouTube now because it turns out that 70% of the videos around the world that people watch on YouTube are suggested by Google's top secret up next algorithm. 70%. So you go on YouTube and you watch the video you wanna watch, there's a 70% chance that the next video you're gonna watch is suggested by their algorithm. So we're we've I've come up with a way to to, to actually um, study study this and, and quantify the impact that that algorithm uh, is uh, is likely having on people's again attitudes beliefs opinions purchases votes uh, and I, I have a feeling that the the numbers are just going to be uh, staggering but as I say I I've talked very briefly about two different manipulation techniques I've discovered. Uh, more than a dozen at this point. I mean, there, I could spend the rest of my life just investigating uh, those, and I'm sure there are many more because, again, I'm not Google, right? I don't, I don't know what's happening there internally. Uh, I do know that one of the uh, email exchanges that was leaked to the Wall Street Journal in 2018, I do know that in that email exchange, 
one one Google employee says to to a group of them says, "How can we use ephemeral experiences? How can we use ephemeral experiences to change people's views about Trump's travel ban?" I I I, I couldn't believe I was seeing that. I couldn't believe it. Could not believe it because. Again, that that that's what I've been studying. I've been studying these 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 very uh, you know um, fleeting experiences that we all all have every day as we look at news feeds, for example, or as uh, Google flashes search suggestions in front of us as we're typing a search term. These are fleeting. These are ephemeral experiences, which I study and I study their impact, and their impact is is enormous. It's up. It's incredible. And here's a Google employee actually saying, in writing, how can we use ephemeral experiences to change people's opinions? Wow. So, you know, this is this is what we're we're up against here. Let me mention too that uh, on the censorship issue, because I know you you're concerned about that one. On the censorship issue, in 2016, I published a very long investigative article in a magazine called U.S. News and World Report that I called the new censorship. And it was about uh, nine of Google's blacklists. Uh, I had never seen a Google black Google blacklist. I, no one ever had seen one, but I wrote about nine of them in detail, explaining exactly how the company uses them. I know this as a programmer, that they had to exist. And it was just last year that uh, Zachary Voorhees, uh, who might be a good person for you to interview, Zachary Voorhees left Google after being there for uh, eight and a half years as a senior software engineer, he left Google voluntarily and took with him 950 pages of documents and a video. And among those documents were two of Google's blacklists. And they were actually called blacklists. So, you know, I'm not imagining these things. I've been, I've been writing about and studying these issues for a long, long time now. And, uh, you know, for a while I was kind of a lone voice, uh, but I was positive that what you know what I was what I was finding was absolutely correct. And more and more, the the kinds of um, assertions I've made over the years they have been confirmed. Every single assertion I have made has been confirmed, either by documents, videos, uh, or whistleblowers. So that's frightening. Um, just one, if you could just quickly answer this question, because I have friends, I, I talk to people about this, uh, and they say I have nothing to hide. And, and they go, they got <laughs> their Fitbits, and they're using the Google, and how do you answer that? Well, first of all, you should throw your Fitbit in the garbage, um, because that's, that, that's now given, Google bought Fitbit recently, that's now given them all kinds of, uh, you know, physiological information, uh, streaming in real time up up to Google, Google servers, uh, of, you know, physiological information in real time about millions of people. If you have a Fitbit, throw it away. There, there are competitors out there. You know, you, you do not want to be giving more data to Google, especially about, uh, you know, your body. But the point is that uh, people who think they have nothing to hide and so they're not concerned about all the surveillance, uh, I, I you know, uh, I'm, I think I need to write a, an article just on this issue because that is so naive. Okay, uh, we all have things that we 
want to hide, first of all. Uh, but even if you live a, the life of a saint, uh, I don't know anyone who does, even if you live the life of a saint, you don't know how the data are being used. That's the problem. So more and more we have learned about Google and especially Facebook that the data they're collecting uh, is being used in ways you, we couldn't possibly have imagined. It's, sometimes it's being shared, for example, with other companies. Sometimes it's being shared with intelligence agencies. It's being used to create digital models of us, which are, uh, are, are used to predict uh, our behavior, our thinking, our purchases, literally predict everything we do, think, and say 24 hours a day. We don't, we don't know how these data are being used or how they're going to be used. And again, the more you give, the more information you give about yourself, the more especially highly personal information you give, the easier it is uh, for a company or some other entity, a government agency, or let's, or let's say someone with bad intentions uh, to control you. Because if you can predict, you can control. So, uh, you know, and then what about, what about our children? You know, no one even talks about that issue. And I'm not even allowed to study that. I, I wish I could, but I would never get permission, you know, you have to get permission to do research. I would never get permission to do that. But I'm sure that all of the techniques that I've been studying with adults are also operating on children. And the surveillance, the manipulation uh, that if it's affecting our children, I, I, I have five children. I mean, I'm, I find this uh, terrifying because, because our children are more immersed in the world of technology uh, you know, than, than adults have ever been. Um, you know, at one point I was checking on my daughter because, uh, you know, parents do that when uh, kids are sleeping sometimes. And I went into her room and, and there were five electronic devices around her pillow. Uh, talk about, you know, being immersed in technology. Uh, so all of these issues that I've expressed concern about, they're a problem for us as adults, but I think they're a bigger problem for our children and the world in which our children are going to grow. And I think this is a pivotal year. I think if we don't take uh, very concrete steps this year uh, to get these companies to back off or to take away their powers, um, it's possible we'll never be able to stop them. And they will, in some sense or other, uh, take over. Well, that'll do it uh, for this uh, episode. And I, I know I, uh, you're one of the few or perhaps only person uh, doing this research uh, at this level uh, in the world. And uh, I know you have these uh, bigger projects and I think you need, you need funding. If I recall, it was something like $50 million. Uh, and so how can people best uh, support you? I mean, even I, I'm sure you can take small donations, I think, on your website. There's, there's a button there. Where can people go to support you? Very simple. Just go to mygoogleresearch.com, mygoogleresearch.com, and you can learn more about my research, but you can also uh, uh, support the research. And yes, small gifts are very helpful. We have people now, a lot of people making uh, you know, monthly gifts that just are programmed in automatically. Uh, and now and then we've gotten some very large gifts uh, just by people going to that link. So again, it's mygoogleresearch.com. Uh, but yeah, we need a lot of money to do uh, large-scale monitoring 
uh, in advance of the 2020 election. And so uh, I've been kind of out of it the past few months. I've ha had some health issues, and unfortunately, my beautiful wife was uh, killed in a car accident uh, a few weeks ago. And uh, so I've been kind of out of it, but I'm trying to get back on my feet uh, now because it's, uh, to me, it's, it's, it's urgent uh, that we set up uh, systems to monitor what the big tech companies are showing people uh, that could have an impact on votes in the 2020 election in the U.S. Because, again, I've calculated that uh, tech companies, if they all support the same presidential candidate, which is very likely, uh, they will be able to shift 15 million votes. In other words, the tech companies will, without us knowing, they will pick the winner. And the only way to stop them, there's there's no time for laws or regulations, and those the company would just fight in court anyway. The only way to stop them is by setting up uh, large-scale versions of the monitoring systems that I set up in 2018 and 2016. Uh, you know, if we can we can detect and expose day by day by day uh, bias, favoritism uh, uh, on YouTube. Uh, on Facebook, on news feeds and search results and so on and so forth. If we can detect that and uh, collect massive amounts of data and expose that day by day, expose it to the media, expose it to the Federal Election Commission, expose it to Congress, I think these companies will back off uh, and will detect that. We'll know when they have backed off. And that will, again, give us uh, you know, the so-called free and fair election uh, which is still, of course, full of dirty tricks, but at least they're competitive dirty tricks. You know, it's, it's two sides, each using dirty tricks against each other. But when the tech companies, uh, unfortunately, become part of that, of that system, you cannot counteract what they do. That's the problem. See, if, if you set up a billboard or you buy a TV commercial, I can set up a billboard and I can buy a TV commercial. But if Google wants to favor me uh, for president, <laughs> I don't think they would do that, but if Google wants me to be the next president and they basically use all the techniques they have available to them, you cannot counteract that. That's a, that's a non-competitive practice. Uh, it's invisible, leaves no paper trail, can't counteract it. Think about that. That's, that's what's happening right now. You've got your work uh, cut out for you. Uh, well, we wish you the best, and um, not only for the work, but I think you're also an inspiration because you, you keep going uh, in light of all the difficulties uh, that are happening. And you inspire the tiny little podcasters like us to to not throw in the towel and to keep going. So, uh, thank you for everything you're doing. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for for you know just paying attention. Uh, you know, it's nice to know. Some people are interested in what I'm doing, so I appreciate it. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast and interview. I would like to remind you that our website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and you can sign up for our mailing list that goes out each weekend with the latest podcast and a long collection of important news headlines. It's good to sign up for the newsletter in case we experience censorship and deplatforming. You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. 
Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.